Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 932. On today's show, we begin with David Lorela welcoming Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet Canada to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. David and Ben get into the interesting spot the Jays find themselves in as they must decide if they are buyers or sellers in a competitive AL East. While they have had great contributions from players like Robbie Ray and Alec Manoa, they are still waiting for more from players like George Springer. And all eyes are, of course, on Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is somehow living up to the sky-high expectations that were put on him when he entered the league. And I just think that as you're looking ahead and trying to imagine what this team can do, Vladdy's at the center of that. Even now, we, we've kind of gotten used to him as this MVP caliber player already at age 22, being you know the sixth youngest player in the American League. And so with two plus months remaining, it's just going to be super fascinating to see what he can do, where he can take this season. It's, it's absolutely incredible to see what he can do offensively. After that, Ben Clements and Eric Longenhagen have their latest extended chat to catch up on their travels and all things baseball. Eric is now on the East Coast, but he talks with Ben about his trip to Denver for the Futures game. Meanwhile, Ben has been waist-deep in the trade value rankings over at Fangraphs, and the duo get to talking about all that goes into that, from methodical nuances to questionable reader comments. Ben and Eric go over players like Freddie Peralta, Jack Flaherty, and Mookie Betts, as well as how to even try to put their trade values into a numerical order. I don't know, like... It's just tough when you're ranking this many people to get like the exact ordinal ranking right every time. Right. And I also think that one thing that we really let guide us in these parts was just like the the bulk of feedback we got. Because honestly, we spent a lot more time getting the top of it right than arguing exactly like whether someone should be 47, 39, 45. But before we get to these segments, I must remind you about the Fangraphs.com store. Make sure to check out our shirts and mugs and caps, as well as an ad-free membership. It is truly the best way to browse a site, as well as support everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet Canada. First, Ben, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. David, it's my pleasure. It's great to be talking some baseball with you. It's been too long since we've had the chance to catch up in person, but uh, great to be talking some Jays and some baseball with you. Right. And that's actually is a segue, Ben, into something I was going to ask right up front is people will actually be able to go into Canada in a matter of why well, it's the 30th, I believe. Is that correct? From the U.S., people who are fully vaxxed. So the Blue Jays certainly will be here on the 30th. I believe it's into August for kind of, uh, you know, your normal lay people trying to cross the border. But given that I'm already here, I'm probably not the person who's quite as up to date on, on the exact date. But my expectation is sometime in August, which is great, to be able to welcome people from outside of Canada into into Toronto and into Canada. Right. It may be August 7th if uh, that is clicking into my brain. I will not be coming into Canada during the regular season yet because I found out uh, about a week ago that my passport has expired. So uh, That'll do it. <laughs> well, yeah, it, I think it'll take the uh, U.S. government maybe uh, about two months to get me a new one. But that could be in time to go to Toronto to cover postseason baseball. Is that feasible? I think it's possible. I mean, it's it's super interesting, and they have a long way to go before that becomes a reality for them. But 
I think this team is good, and there's a difference between being a good team and being a playoff team. And at a certain point, you've actually got to start winning games and delivering on whatever promise exists on your roster. But when I look at this Blue Jays team, they look like a good team to me. You've got Ryu and Robbie Ray at the top of the rotation, both pitching well. You've got an offense that really is one of the best in baseball. I think that's clear at this point. And more importantly, it's fully healthy right now with George Springer finding his form with Vlad Guerrero Jr., of course, leading the way, and a supporting cast that, that really makes it a tough lineup to face one through nine. So it's a good team. Now, whether that leads to the playoffs, I don't know, but I do think the next couple months are going to be super interesting, especially with the trade deadline coming up in just about a week. And will the, the following days mean very much, you know, toward the buy or sell? We're actually recording this on Tuesday. So that is three more baseball games to be played before uh, you listeners are going to hear this. As of the moment, the Jays have, I believe, like a 41 or 42 percent playoff probability. Are they buyers or are they sellers if they're in the same position on Friday that they are today on Tuesday? At this point, they'd be buyers, and that's where they want to be going. That's the the messaging that they're sending out from Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins. They, they're intent on adding. Now, of course, if they go 0-7 in the next week or so, then you obviously have to pivot at a certain point, as the Cubs did, and you know you, you have to adapt to the reality in front of you, as, as all front offices do. But I think, you know, let's say they go 4-3 and three in their next week, which is pretty easy to imagine given the way they're playing right now then they would be buyers and you know this is a team even though i say it's a good team this is a team with some clear needs too i mean especially in the bullpen but as every team this time of of year that's that's contending and trying to build toward a potential playoff appearance could say i mean the blue jays could use rotation help as well and there's always room for more offense even on teams that are good offensively there is room to add another bat to this lineup and given that their playoff odds are only about 40%, say they do lose maybe four of their, their next seven, is it reasonable to say that they should be sellers because with the, the core of young talent and you know good prospects coming up, this team is set to win for years and they may take half a step backwards by buying right now? You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. And I think if if you're in that front office, I'm sure it's one that you'd have to at least consider uh, because, you know, in guys like Marcus Semyon, Robbie Ray, I mean, there would be demand for those guys. But I, I think even if you kind of consider it in a really broad sense and in the sense of you don't want to cross out any options the the place that i expect the blue jays to land where i fully expect them to land is to be buyers and to try to make the most of where they are with this team and and make the most of these seasons from guys like marcus Semyon and robbie ray who aren't necessarily going to be back next year and beyond but they're having great seasons right now it's a great chance to make the most of vlad guerrero jr obviously we expect that he'll do this for a long time but Still, he's doing it now. Might as well take advantage of it now. And so if they're above 500 um, with you know a mostly healthy roster, I think there's a lot of reason to buy. And that can also mean buying players with additional control. I, I certainly don't expect they're going to trade top prospects for rentals or anything like that. But there's still room to improve this team without necessarily being reckless and without giving away too much from the long term. Which players, Ben, do you think are the keys to the rest of the season for this team sneaking into the playoffs. Is it players like George Springer, who has been injured, and maybe a Kevin Biggio, who has underperformed? 
Yeah, Springer's huge, right? I mean, I think that, you know, for for baseball fans, we all know what George Springer can do. I mean, we've seen it year after year and, and every October, like we know how good this guy can be. And, and he's been okay. Uh, he's been solid since he's been back healthy with the Blue Jays after missing basically the first half of the season with a couple different injuries. But there's room for him to go out there and, you know, generate a couple war over the over the last couple months of the season and hit 10 or 15 home runs. And I think along with Springer, I, I just point to Vladdy. I think that at this point, he is the focal point of this team. I'm sure for opposing pitchers and pitching coaches, that's the case. And for fans, it's the case. And I just think that as you're looking ahead and trying to imagine what this team can do, Vladdy's at the center of that. Even now, we, we've kind of gotten used to him as this MVP caliber player already at age 22, being you know the sixth youngest player in the American League. And so with two plus months remaining, it's just going to be super fascinating to see what he can do, where he can take this season. It's, it's absolutely incredible to see what he can do offensively. And certainly his defense has picked up as well and improved. So watching him, regardless of where the Blue Jays as a team land, watching the development of Vlad Guerrero Jr. has been incredibly interesting this season. And I'm sure that's going to continue in the course of the next couple months. No, I think that we probably could spend the entire podcast segment talking about Lad Guerrero Jr. with with as brilliant as he is, which we will not, of course. But I will ask, would he qualify as a pleasant surprise, not because of his talent level, but has he actually exceeded what realistically could have been expected at this age? Oh, I think he definitely has exceeded it. I, you know, and, and it's funny because at first... He fell short of the expectations that were sky high for a young 20-year-old kid arriving in the major leagues. He arrived, there was all kinds of hype. I mean, at Sportsnet, we were we were broadcasting his batting practice before he'd played a, a major league game. And that was exciting in its own way. But he did underperform relative to those expectations. And so now what's remarkable is he's actually surpassing what I think anyone could reasonably have expected. Because how could you say, like, even for a guy who came up as, as the top prospect in baseball, you're still not going to project that he's going to hit, you know, 45, 50 home runs with an 1,100 OPS in his age 22 season. Like, even for the top prospect in baseball, you're not going to project quite that much. I mean, you might project 35 homers with a 900 OPS, and that would still be really aggressive. But what he's doing right now is far beyond even that. Who do you see as the biggest pleasant surprise of players not named Laddie Guerrero Jr.? They've got a few of them, and I, I, I would go to Robbie Ray at this point just because, you know, this is someone historically who has walked so many uh, hitters, and, and we've seen that, you know, with his entire career with the Diamondbacks, basically, he would be someone who, yes, he would get strikeouts, and he would be a tough at-bat at a lot of times, but, you know, with that, he would be walking more hitters than almost anyone in baseball, and so for him to be striking guys out isn't surprising and for him to be taking the ball every five days isn't surprising either but to do it with only walking two batters per nine I mean that's something that I just wouldn't have expected and I, I don't even think obviously the Blue Jays liked him that's why they traded for him it's why they re-signed him but I don't even think that the Blue Jays could have reasonably hoped for him to cut down his walk rate to this point. I mean, his walks right now are basically right in line with Hyunjin Ryu. And that's like unfathomable compared to where these guys, you know, where they were a year ago or 18 months ago. 
know, a year ago, Robbie Ray came into Fenway Park in the crazy empty ballpark season and was absolutely horrible. He was way out of sync. He was taking 30, 40 seconds between pitches. He couldn't throw strikes. And he really looked like a pitcher who was, well, I guess he's too young to have been done, but things look pretty hopeless. So I think it's pretty clear that the adjustments that he made were very meaningful. Absolutely. And I mean, it's so necessary for this team. Anytime you're talking about a wildcard contender, as the Blue Jays are at this point, I mean, you're talking about pretty razor thin margins. And so every injury hurts, every breakout really helps, and every trade has the potential to make a big difference. Every win is so precious at that point. And so for Robbie Ray to to take that step forward from being maybe a guy who's number four, number five in your rotation, you get some good starts, you get some clunkers. Now he's someone who you're really expecting a a strong outing from, and he's delivering on those expectations every time he takes the ball. And with injuries in mind, Ben, what is the current status of Alec Manoa and Nate Pearson? Well, Manoa has taken just a huge step forward this year to to reach the majors uh, less than two years after being drafted and succeed in the majors too. I mean, there have been times that he has really pitched well. And, you know, as as we talk right now, David, you know, 2.90 ERA for a rookie, that's a great place to be and some strong peripherals as well. Now, on Monday of this week we learned that he had slipped going down the dugout steps actually a second blue jays pitcher along with ray to slip going downstairs this season so your standard pitcher injury by any stretch but the jays are hoping that manoa misses just one start so that would put him back in their rotation toward the end of july at some point and really he's far ahead of pearson right now he leapfrogged pearson when it came to you know just where they're at in their progression as young pitchers this season and Pearson who's been dealing uh, with a groin issue basically all year has been on the sidelines and the Jays have been seeking opinions on his health trying to get a sense of what he's going to be able to do for them um, there's some question as to the whether there's an underlying issue there that he's going to have to get sorted out but certainly you know a lost season for Pearson when it comes to the potential impact on the major league team and you know more broadly you think about the developmental reps that he's missing right now not good so you really have one guy trending up and one guy trending down between those two Assuming good health going forward, Ben, who do you think has the brighter future with the Blue Jays? Is it Pearson or is it now Manoa? Now it's got to be Manoa. I just, I think that with pitching, you know, I'm going to have to go with the person who's healthy, right? And just given that, you know, setting aside the the current back contusion that Manoa is dealing with, he has been able to take the ball and Pearson, you know, there's still a ton of upside there, but it would be hard to take someone who's just missed so much time, not only this year, also in years past. And, you know, in some cases, very fluky injuries that Pearson has dealt with, including taking a comebacker off his elbow and breaking his elbow a couple years ago. So it's not to say that, hey, you know, Pearson, you know, I, I hate saying, you know, this guy just can't stay healthy because those things can shift really quickly one way or the other. But regardless, he's not healthy right now. He's not pitching right now. And so I think that, you know, the the choice is to go with the guy who is healthy and, and who has been producing. And injuries clearly have played a pretty big role on the Blue Jays' fortunes this year, not simply to Springer, 
But one of their big free agent signings coming into the into the season has not pitched at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought Kirby Yates was a good pickup, a good a good gamble. Uh, you know, obviously, with hindsight being twenty twenty, you think, oh, maybe they should have been a bit more aggressive on Liam Hendricks because you know how good would Liam Hendricks look in the back in a Blue Jays uniform at this point with the season you know he's having with the White Sox, of course, but. At the time, and of course, you can only base these uh, decisions based off what you know at the time. And Kirby Yates seemed to be someone who was poised for a nice bounce back season and it just didn't happen. I mean, he's never going to throw a pitch for the Blue Jays. So they've really had to make things up on the fly and the bullpen really didn't go well for a period of time there. And if they end up missing the playoffs by a game or two, I guarantee you can look back at some of those games in late May and early June and say that's where you miss some some huge opportunities and some losses that, that should have been wins. And if we do look back as far as last winter, the Blue Jays seem to be in on most every free agent or every player uh, supposedly on the trade market. I know that Kevin Gosman's name had been out there. He obviously would look good in that rotation. Do you think it's fair to say that the confluence of COVID and the unsurety of where the Blue Jays were going to play kept them from signing players like Hendricks or Gosman or maybe a Michael Bradley? I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, my guess would be no. I, I, my guess would be that that didn't stop them. I, I look at who they did sign and the fact that they landed the top free agent out there in George Springer and were able to to persuade him to sign in Toronto. The fact that they signed Marcus Semien, the fact that they got Kirby Yates and, and also some some smaller scale free agents, whether it's a David Phelps or a Tyler Chatwood. We've seen in the last couple of years that the Blue Jays have been willing to spend with Ryu a couple off seasons ago and then with Springer. And to me, if you're a team that's truly willing to spend and you know not just talk about it, but go out there and offer 80 million, offer 150 million, then you're going to sign free agents. And I think players certainly in talking to them this year the stress and the uncertainty of not knowing where they're going to play it's weighed on them at times and it hasn't been easy but ultimately i think with free agency if you've got a competitive team and a team that's willing to spend i think you can sign guys so it's it hasn't been easy but you know i I think that as long as this front office is willing to spend as long as the ownership has the money available then we're going to continue seeing the blue jays sign free agents And looking into your crystal ball, let's say that the Blue Jays do not go into sell mode and deal off guys like Marcus Semien and Robbie Ray. Is it fair to say that they are going to be back next year? Or do you think that the whole free agent mishmash is just too hard to predict either returning to Toronto? When you say back next year, you're talking about being aggressive in free agency? Correct. You know, will the Blue Jays be able to re-op Semyon and Ray, who I'm pretty certain are free agents. That yes, is correct? yes. No, that's exactly right. Right. And is Steven Matz another, I think? He is. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as to whether those guys are going to be back, I have no idea. I think it's super interesting to see what it looks like for their respective free agencies because, you know, Semyon was kind of overlooked going into this past off season because he didn't have a great 2020 season. But you look at what he's doing right now, 20 plus homers, 20 plus doubles, OPS close to 900. He's having a great year. And so we have spent so much time talking about Trevor Story or Javi Baez, Carlos Correa, and rightfully so. But I think Semyon's in the point where he is going to have multi-year offers without a doubt and are those offers going to be 
I mean, I don't know. Could he get a four-year, five-year offer? Certainly after the season he's having, I think that there's a case that he would be one of the more desirable free agent infielders, period, this, this coming winter. So the Jays should be in on him at the same time. They've got a lot of young infielders coming up through their system, like Austin Martin, Jordan Groshans, some of their top prospects. So not to say that you ever just turn away from major league talent because prospects don't necessarily materialize in the way that you hope, but it could also turn the Jays more toward the pitching market because they are going to need pitching help. They always are, and their prospect depth really isn't as concentrated in pitching, especially at a time that... Pearson has taken that step back. The, the system is really heavy on position players right now. So they have to be on an array. And I think it's, you know, when I look ahead to this year's free agent class, I think Gosman's probably your number one candidate to sign a lucrative long-term deal. But Ray's up there. I think he's going to sign a multi-year deal without a doubt. I think, you know, is that three is that four does someone give him five i mean i'm i'm not sure where it leads and there's still a lot of baseball to be played but he's going to be a very coveted free agent and what should be i mean you think about guys like scherzer and and kershaw and verlander out there obviously lance lynn just signed but it's actually kind of a good free agent class for starting pitching and robbie ray's a big reason for that and of course the blue jays do have young pitching despite the you know as you said more position players because manoa and pearson really are still prospects simeon woods richardson who i believe has had a fairly uneven year in double a yeah. is i think still just 20 years old yeah exactly and woods richardson uneven is a very kind way to put it david i mean he's he's struggled lately and again we'll see where it leads and these ups and downs are part of trying to develop pitching and, and being patient with that. But he's not necessarily knocking on the door right this second. And for a team that, you know, there's so much offense and there's so much talent with the position player core that the Blue Jays really owe it to themselves to continue surrounding this group with starting pitching and with relief pitching. And that's part of the challenge they're facing ahead of this deadline. But organizationally, you look at it a bit longer term, they're going to have to be in on pitching this offseason. And speaking of pitching, Ontario native uh, Jordan Romano, I think Maris mentioned here, he has been a pleasant surprise. He's been great. I mean, the, the bullpen has struggled so much this season, but Romano's probably been the, the one guy who has consistently provided the Blue Jays with outs in high leverage spots. And so while well, you've had others cycling through where, you know, Adolis gives you a good few weeks or Chatwood looks great for a couple of weeks. Romano's really been that consistent reliever. And, you know, the fact that he's probably been the only one kind of tells you about where this team needs to be looking and improving ahead of the deadline. Because, you know, when you think back to last October, such a reminder that you need multiple relievers that you can trust if you want to get anywhere. And right now, the Jays don't necessarily have that. Uh, Mays has been really good as well. But Jordan Romano has been a necessary surprise and, and a huge help to this team. And of course, Romano being from Ontario can't hurt. I had the pleasure of living in Toronto for a few years in the early 90s in the Young and St. Clair area. One thing I learned in my short time in Canada is Canadians love Canada. 
So yes, yeah, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. And um, yeah, I can tell you, I spent. Uh, you, normally, I would spend a lot of time in your country, in the U.S., but uh, I've been in Canada nonstop since the pandemic hit, and since I returned here from spring training. And it's a great place to be. I'm also ready for uh, you know seeing some baseball and returning to the U.S. whenever that's possible. But yeah, that's great. Lots of proud Canadians, no doubt about that. Right. And with that in mind, we have time for just a few more quick things, Ben. Canadians love Canada. They certainly love the Blue Jays. What will the reaction of the fan base be if the Jays do decide to sell at the trade deadline? Honestly, I think it would be a, a huge surprise at this point. I think that at this point, they're going to be buyers. Certainly, that's the expectation publicly. And it's almost hard for me to really imagine. I mean, having said that, eight losses in a row could happen. You never know. But I think there's an expectation that the front office has set through their messaging that this team will be buyers. And so the fans have listened to that. People like myself continue you know, saying that as, as well. And so you end up with a, a really strong expectation that they're going to be looking to add. And basically, that's uh, there are a lot of places that they could add. There are a lot of ways that they could help this team, again, without disrupting the long-term future. So I, I think it would be very surprising for fans um, if, if they did decide to change course. Right. So with that expectation, maybe it's fair to say that there would be a certain amount of backlash to the front office that, hey, this team should have gone for it. Yeah, and absolutely. I think there would be backlash. But I don't think we'll get to that point because, you know, if you track the the way front offices speak, which, of course, those of us in the in the media do, and you kind of watch what the Blue Jays say and then what they do afterwards. The last few years, there's there's certainly been some consistency where, you know, the Blue Jays outline what it is that they expect to be doing. And then basically they go out and do that. I mean, if, if you look back to the Ryu offseason, the Blue Jays were saying they needed to add pitching. They needed to add multiple impact starting pitchers. They got Tanner Roark. Well, that didn't work out at all. They got Hyunjin Ryu. That worked. Okay, they added their multiple pitchers. Then the next offseason, they said they wanted to add multiple uh, talented players to the to the roster um, through trade or free agency. Maybe that's two elite players. Maybe that's multiple players who are more very good. And they added two elite players in the form of Semyon and George Springer. So now when they're saying that they're looking to improve, that they are, are very intent on bolstering this roster and adding to this group, I, I just think that you know connecting those dots, that's what they're going to do. And if they didn't do that, then it really something would have had to happen, I think, in the next 10 days or so. And today, of course, being Tuesday, July 20th, that Ben and I are speaking. Ben, great perspectives on the Blue Jays, great insight. And thank you for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Well, David, it's my pleasure. It's always great to talk Blue Jays. And uh, hopefully we'll be we'll be chatting at a ballpark sometime soon once you get your passport or once I get down to Fenway Park or wherever else we, we happen to cross paths. But it's always good to chat. And uh, thanks for having me on. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Hey, everyone. It's Ben Clemens, and I'm joined here by Eric Longenhagen for our uh, non-regular but semi-recurring Let's Talk About Baseball segment. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing fine. I'm in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. right now. Well, technically Bethesda, Maryland. It's actually kind of a nice downtown area. I'm looking forward to getting out. It's it's early in my west coast body but it's almost noon here on the east coast i'm about to see family for the first time in a couple of years because of pandemic and 
just me doing stuff in in Arizona. What's up with you? Um, I'm not in DC. I wouldn't mind being there. I got back from a trip to Mount Rainier last week. That was great. And stepped right into 200 angry comments about the fact that I put one player one spot too low on a list. Something that you seem, you know, very, <laughs> very familiar with through your years of prospect list writing. Yeah, you know, we could probably talk about engagement with readership and stuff if we really wanted to. It's been a really long time since I've looked at the comments on any of my articles, which isn't to, to I hope it's not a slap in the face to our readers. It's just like people, we'll, we talk about this sometimes on staff calls where uh, we'll say, hey, what do we want to do? There's there's something bad happening in a comment section. You know, there might be like a lunatic person or spam or something like this. And it's like, I'm always an advocate for doing away with the comment sections entirely. And people are like, no, they can be useful. And I just don't think that pointing out a typo yeah. is worth, you know, whatever, the lunatic fringe or someone, you know, yelling at Meg or me or RJ about like something uh, ridiculous. Yeah. But then... You know, sometimes I do see people's point, though. Sometimes there's something like, oh, yeah, there's a thing we didn't know that occurred in the article that like someone pointed out. Yeah, I think it's also as long as you don't take them too seriously. And despite my joke there, I, I don't. Sorry, guys. I mean, I'll read it, but I'm not really going to be changing my opinion much on stuff unless I got something factually wrong. I do think that it's nice that, you know, people can talk to each other and the 95 percent of the comments are civil discussions and. As long as you don't care too much about that 5%. I'll trust that that's true. <laughs> crazy whack jobs. No, it really is. It's not a, this is not the ESPN comments section. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like this is the thing is I, I just to get assume, rid of right away. I just assume it's like anything else that I come across where it's like, oh, look at this YouTube comment section. Our, we're yeah. done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the next good There's comment no section on a like major website. I mean, no offense, Fangraph. Sorry, Appleman. Don't listen to this. Uh, will be the first one, but I think we're small enough that it still works yeah. okay. Uh, all right, so baseball stuff, you and I have been working on big picture stuff. I did the draft, was in Denver for the draft and the Futures game, and then yesterday briefly as a connection before I went to D.C. <laughs> been a lot of time in the Denver airport lately. I was going to say, you tired of that airport yet? Yep, uh, I am. And then I'm working on 40-man crunch stuff as we speak. I've got like a third of it done, uh, and you wrapped up the trade value stuff. Oh, not quite wrapped, well, but right. scene wrapped. Yeah. I don't know. It's your first year doing it. How did you and you and Kevin at the onset had an initial discussion about maybe changing the way you guys did it, right? Yeah. I think largely Kevin, but also me to some extent, are just tired of the like the fetishizing of surplus value that it seems like our readers really want us to do at times. But I don't also, I don't know how much teams still behave like that. Obviously, there are kind of bean counters in every front office who are behaving like that and maybe teams do overall surely the rays do but if you look at some of the kind of recent returns for like true blockbusters like you know it seems like the dodgers paid more than surplus value would imply for mookie and stuff like that like i bet you that what would actually get front offices excited is not trading for alex kirilov to name a kind of you know Back of the 50, like, here's a guy who has some value because he's signed to a contract that pays him less than his production is worth. No, no team is going to be like, oh, my God, we traded for Alex Kirilov. Let's go. But you trade for Garrett Cole or Jacob deGrom or something. And I mean, now you're talking. That's that's like yeah. that's why people come into the office. And so I, I think we've talked about kind of reorienting the list towards that. We didn't this year. We kind of kept it in the classic, you know, which one is worth more eggs or whatever. If you're picking some generic unit of player value or of player surplus value or whatever, 
but I think that we've kind of introduced more of uh, more of caring about the skill of the player rather than the contract of the player into the list this year, and we're hoping to do more of that because I think that's something that has been at times a little bit lost in these discussions. I do think, yeah, like having basically advised Kylie on the last couple of years before he left Fangraphs for ESPN. Like, yeah, it is, at some point there is just like, hey, Francisco Lindor belongs on here, or somebody does be, just because they're that talented. And yeah. some of the, you know, if, if people are listening to this for the first time and haven't been engaged with Fangraphs since the beginning of time. Which is very reasonable. Surplus value is basically like, all right, how good are you weighed against what your contract is? And essentially, like, you know, there some sometimes, like, the Mets trade of Jared Kelnick, etc., for Edwin Diaz, etc., was, like, immediately bad. And part of that was because of reasons associated with surplus value. Like, oh, we're giving up this long-term controllable piece who's likely to be very good in exchange for, like, this volatile closer who makes a lot of money. And also taking on uh, Robinson, Robinson Cano's, Cano's contract. contract. Right, like, this aging you know, superstar, but he's going to be bad at some point here shortly and very expensive. Like, it still should factor into the thinking. Yeah. But when it's the only thing you look at, you are missing stuff. And it's also not linear. So, like, the Pirates, if the Pirates added Mike Trout tomorrow or the Diamondbacks added Mookie Betts, like, both those teams are still going to be bad. And so valuing their wins monetarily, there almost isn't any, like – even if Mookie is a Diamondback tomorrow, the Diamondbacks aren't going to make – like, people aren't going to flood into that stadium to, to watch what is still going to be, like, a last-place team, basically. Yeah. I might marginally disagree with you there in that I do think that going from being a, a 65-win team to a 75-win team has some value, but it's not much. Right, right. But it's definitely not the same as going from – all right, so that's a 10-win gap that you just described, right? Yeah. If I'm an 83-win team and I go – to an 88-win team, that oh, yeah, five-game gap more. is way more valuable than the 10-game gap that you just described. So, like, it's not really a linear relationship. I do yeah, think not even a little. Agreed. are behaving more specifically to where they fall on that win curve. And not just that, but, like, as I was doing the starting the 40-man crunch piece, right, so I, I'm looking at Cleveland. And Cleveland has so many players who have to be added to the 40-man this offseason, basically. It's like... They only have a couple free agents coming off the 40-man. It's it's Brian Shaw and Eddie Rosario. They have club options on Roberto Perez, Jose Ramirez, and they'll pick up Ramirez. And Cesar Hernandez. And then, like, here are the no-doubt, like, we have to add this guy type of prospects. You have Tyler Freeman, Brian Rocchio, and George Valera, all of which are on the 100. Richie Palacios, who's hitting uh, in the upper levels. Cody Morris, uh, who's, you know, pitching really well at the upper levels. And Joey Cantillo, who was a big part of the return for Mike Clevenger from San Diego, all of those guys basically, in my mind, are slam dunks likely to be added to the 40-man. And then in addition to that, you've got you know a half dozen other guys who are interesting for one reason or another. Jose Tena, Jose Fermin, Raymond Burgos, who's rehabbing from an injury. Another guy who's like, hey, this is probably a good reliever. Aaron Bracco, who is a big prospect who's not performing right now. He's like on the line. Uh, based on how he's performing, which is not great. You have a couple like fringe relief type guys. Anyway, it's a lot of guys. And yeah, so you just named a lot of names. I, I'm not going to lie to you. In the middle there, I think I like zoned out for a second. Of course, yeah. And you should have, right? Like Adam Scott and Robert Broom 
are maybe someone takes him in the Rule 5 because they need, like, ooh, Robert Broom, a sidearm reliever with good numbers. Like, we could use this guy. We're the Miami Marlins. Like, whatever it is, I don't know. But it's way more dudes than they have coming off the 40-man, right? And you can see dudes than they have coming off the 40-man, right? And you can see, oh, when they traded, that's where almost all beyond, way beyond Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green were just recently drafted high schoolers whose 40-man timelines are way, way, way down the line. They don't have to worry about it for a couple of years because well, they have this... What do you mean? They also got Rosario and Jimenez. Right, and they're on... Oh, well, yeah, Jimenez, I think, is a long-term piece for them. But, like, would it surprise you if Ahmed Rosario was non-tendered this offseason? Like, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if a team's going to do it, it's them. Right. Jimenez is probably a long-term piece. He was not good this year. I know. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised by... I thought he'd immediately be fine, but he's not been. Yeah, you know what? It would surprise me if they non-tendered Rosario, because he's, he's only making a little under two and a half this year. He's going to hit Arb, but, you know, he's having a good year. Like a fine year. Not not great, but he'll be an average player. I think the Indians are not likely to, sn- to snub an average player making $4 million or whatever. But, so then that just makes, you know... That makes yeah, it harder for jam. all of these 40-man guys to end up getting put on there. And so, like, in the next week or so, or immediately after the offseason, they have to, like, consolidate all these pieces so that they're not just losing a bunch of them for nothing. And, like, teams are going to – they have to do that. They're going to take a weird bath on a deal maybe because they have no choice but to do this. So, like, I do think stuff like this really drives – team behavior like the the Lindor package was almost entirely dictated by Cleveland almost certainly looking and saying oh we can't add a bunch of guys who come due on the 40 man for next year because we already have a a real problem on our hands with with the crunch and I I do think teams are behaving independent of surplus value there are other things happening that are really pushing their behavior one way or another yeah I would argue that they didn't necessarily do a great job on that because they got what two low prospects and then two guys who went right on the 40 man I feel like they could have done better. I, I feel like you don't know the Indian. You know, I guess like they've recently had some forty related trades that haven't gone the way I'd expect. Like when they traded away uh, Clevenger, they didn't really do as good of a job getting rid of near majors people as I thought they would. Yeah, the other team behavior that seems pervasive, and I think Cleveland is in this group too is like depth like they want to mitigate risk by taking a bunch of pieces back rather than just right it's one. Just those two kind of uh those two kind of work at cross purposes because depth means that you're using more 40 man spots you know getting five b's instead of one or five c's instead of one a takes up even if only three of them are need to go in the 40 that's three spots i feel like there's kind of a a struggle playing out Specifically, they seem like the team that is having the hardest time dealing with it, where you can't decide whether you want... Like, they clearly want to trade for depth. If you look at the last four or five trades they've made, they're going for quantity, not quality in all of them. But then, like, shocker, turns out that trading for a bunch of players who are maybes, who you need to take some time to figure out if they're good, means you have a 40-man crunch. And that's the next question, then, is... All right, so if we assume... Let's be generous to Cleveland and say... They take these multiplayer deals in return, and they have no choice. Like, either Gabriel Arias or Andres Jimenez, like, there's a chance that they go belly up or, you know, that Isaiah Green and Josh Wolf aren't good. How long do you have to figure that out, and right. what is the process by which you're assessing that? Because we've seen some other teams do some version of this with lower stakes, 
like the Giants, where the Giants say, oh, Lamont Wade can't get reps with the Twins. We'll take him. He's been a pretty good upper-level performer for the last couple of years and basically since college. Let's try it. Let's try Jalen Davis for a little bit. And then every once in a while, they end up with a Mike Yastrzemski. But what is the amount of time? This is the thing that I think Eno Saras mentioned this to me at some, probably a party, and maybe he was a loose-lipped with this for this reason. But I think he said that the Giants, they have like a timeline that they think is a window of time that they can properly assess a player, give them a big league trial for that amount of time. And whether or not they succeed, they they take it at face value, basically, once they've given them whatever it is, six weeks or something like that, like to sink or swim at the big league level. And you can either do it or you can't. But I wonder if that applies, you know, like if, if, if I'm looking and it's like, oh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of someone. Oh, like Will Benson. Like, did they just know at some point two and a half years ago that Will Benson just wasn't good, even though they used the first round pick on him? They just tried it and they said, you know what? This guy's striking out more than is feasible. And they've just known for a couple of years that he's not actually a prospect. And the rest of us kind of s- stay on him like, hey, this is a multi-sport guy. He's huge. He's got long levers. Like, let's see how right. it goes. Whereas no, as they're just like no, this guy doesn't do that. Like, what is the, what is the window that it's reasonable to actually assess whether or not these guys are good? Yeah. Also worth pointing out, they're probably not doing it based on batting average, listeners. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> or OPS or WRC plus or whatever one number metric you want. They're probably looking at a lot of granular stuff about. That. Although Will Benson is one where it's like, oh, this guy's hitting a buck thirty. Like maybe that's bad. Yeah. Okay. There, <laughs> there are definitely. Some batting averages where it's like, no, this is this is not going to work. So other trade value stuff, I sent you feedback on the list. Yeah. And really, I think my most valuable piece of feedback early on was like, oh, hey, Will Smith should be on here probably. Yeah, basically. I think that was a mix-up where yeah. when I got Will Smith wars from Dan, the, the Will Smith, I didn't give him player IDs. And the first Will Smith uh, is the reliever. And I was like, oh, this guy sucks. <laughs> and yep. then... Our first cut was very, like, we did a numbers-based cut to, like, 100 or so. And then started trying to whittle down from there and then adding guys back in. Like, we, the first cut of the list didn't have Otani for a similar reason because he fell under all these minimums. And then we were like, uh, like, probably Otani should be on here. So when it came, the, the piece of this that's the most interesting to me is the last 10 guys. Because I think that there's an argument to make for, you know, Tony Gonsolin instead of Pablo Lopez or Luis. Oh, like, yeah. you know. They're just basically you have to pick from more tightly compacted, similarly talented and controllable players. So what made you guys kind of pick the the last handful of dudes over the guys who were, you know, in essence, honorable mention types just outside of the 50? Yeah, I mean, one thing that is worth mentioning and that I kind of struggled to like verbalize is that the way the distribution works there really are a lot of guys bunched up with very similar yeah. like quantitative value to teams between call it like, I don't know, I didn't look at the exact cutoff, but maybe 35 and like 90. There's very little daylight. There's probably more daylight between player like 20 and 35 than there is between 35 and 70 because like talent gets distributed kind of normally and at the wings, it's very like spread out and, you know, Fernando Tatis is a lot better than player number 35. I guess this is going up after the the final list has come out. Yep. And probably controversially, we put Tatis number one. But 
he's like like there's kind of non-linear value at the wings but that's not really the case like in the 41 to 50 space they're all very similar so uh what made us pick these guys i do think that if you asked us a few weeks later or a few weeks earlier we probably would have come up with a different mix and one thing that kevin and i did that i don't i don't know if kylie would do he's kind of an obsessive compulsive type is uh we just kind of said look if we're wrong a little bit on like 46 through 50 like we'll live with it they're just all so similar and we're going to honorable mention the guys we think need honorable mentions like brian reynolds was 51 and people are you know understandably like hey why isn't he on the top 50 i don't know like is brian reynolds's value really that different from pablo lopez's like no not really no i mean they you can argue killing it right now good for brian reynolds exactly but he's a corner guy i mean he's playing center field but he's a corner guy and there's been a weird downturn in the strikeouts kind of out of nowhere this year in a way that feels like it might not hold forever to be clear if he does this again next year it's a entirely different uh different discussion but i am higher on brian reynolds than i think probably you and kevin are just based on my discussions with kevin and how i think you guys think he was always in that 45 50 range for me like you know there were times when he when he was a Giants prospect and I was watching him, he obviously had a lot of profile at Vanderbilt and then he spent two and a half years ish in the in the giant system. Yeah. And it was just like, is this guy a fifty or is he a forty-five? And basically the things pushing him either into the back of the hundred or just outside of it were his approach in those early days was too aggressive and there were strikeouts because of that. And then it was like, is this guy really a center fielder? Probably not. And that's what, you know, I 45'd yeah. him before all was said and done, basically, which... Yeah. And I think, is he a center fielder? Probably not. Has uh, has been borne out by this year. He, he can play there in, when you need him to, but right. it's not, he's not who you want out there. And, like, that's a nice player, but it, it's just hard to get too worked up about kind of the difference there. I think one player that we were probably low on as I reread through the list, is uh, is Freddie Peralta. And that's not because I don't love Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta is, every time I write anything about the Brewers, it's just about how Freddie Peralta is being underrated by them. I think he's awesome. And I don't know, like, it's just tough when you're ranking this many people to get, like, the exact ordinal ranking right every time. Right. And I also think that one thing that we really let guide us in these parts was just, like, the, the bulk of feedback we got. Because honestly... We spent a lot more time getting the top of it right than arguing exactly like whether someone should be 47, 39, 45. And so then we'd, you know, we'd get feedback and Freddie Peralta was initially a little lower on our list. And I think probably that's because just relief risk, basically. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes down to a binary thing like that with a lot of these individuals. And so when I remember, again, Freddie Peralta came up through the Mariner system initially Saw him in the AZL, and it was like, ooh, this guy's loose, his delivery's weird, his fastball has real angle, and he's going to throw harder like based on how athletic he is. Yeah. And then by the end of his prospectum, I did have a source with the Brewers specifically say, I'm kind of surprised that Freddie Peralta is not on your 100. And I was just like, I don't know, there's real risk that this guy is just a one-pitch reliever. Like, that's that was a justifiable take at the time, like, hey, this guy's got to find <laughs> Two more pitches to start, really. But no, like at that time, the notion that this guy could have, you know, a five and dive type of role initially where he just sort of lives off of this heater while the Brewers take time to develop something. And then towards the back end, he's he's an all-star. Like, yeah, that that seemed far flung 
to me. And yeah, I was just like, no, this guy's, I'm going to stuff this guy f- for a reliever, but I'm not going to like put him in my hundred or anything like that. I think that other places probably did have him towards the back yeah. of the hundreds because he was missing so many bats, which yeah. is now the approach that I've taken where it's just like, I'm going to stick Matt Canarino and Aaron Ashby. Like Aaron Ashby's just on the hundred. He was my number one Brewers prospect. Now he has been for almost a year where it's just like, yeah, this guy's a lefty with really nasty th- three vicious pitches. Like I, I, you know, I don't care if he's he's going to be a reliever. Probably the entirety of his uh, years of team control, like right. he might be a nasty high leverage arm. Basically, is what I'm betting he is. So it's always interesting to see how people put that stuff together because you want to have a process because having a process takes some of like the weight off of yourself. Just thinking like, all right, well then who's number seventeen and then right. who's number eighteen and just trying to do it like that. But also, you don't want to totally adhere to it like you you do want to augment some stuff manually and i think that you know towards the back of the list like you guys make a good argument for everybody who's included in my opinion yeah i think that's kind of what it came down to is that towards the top of the list if someone pushed on us we would often push back because we'd spent a lot of time discussing it right towards the bottom of the list uh we were more willing to listen to feedback and so I, i would say that the top of the list is closer to reflecting where we think guys should be and the bottom of the list is closer to reflecting a combination between that and kind of consensus of fangraphs writers and team sources. Yeah, what was uh was there a type of feedback that was more common coming from teams versus from uh like just people other people at the site who who sent feedback? Like what was sort of if you had to try to name like all right, so a couple of people from teams mentioned these three players and then people from the site mentioned these handful of players like what would you think you know who got who got surprising take up among uh among team sources just as i'm kind of reading through some of the notes now and i didn't talk to all these guys directly you know but uh kevin took some pretty detailed notes is that more people liked flarity than i thought they would okay like he's a guy who we stuck just in the middle of the rankings like he and giolito have the same amount of team control remaining. They're going to make a similar amount of money in ARB. Giolito's projected a little better by Zips, but they're like very similar pitchers. And we ended up leaving them the same, but, you know, we saw several sources just be like, you know, I could see Jack Flaherty in the top 20. I could see Jack Flaherty in the top 15. Like some explicitly said, like, <laughs> Flaherty's better than Giolito, flip him. And I, I was surprised by that because I kind of did that just because they both went to the same high school, you know, nice and lazy. Yeah, then, but eh, no, it wasn't lazy because Max Fried's not stacked there too. Oh, he was to start until we were like, no, he's much worse. <laughs> yeah, it's like pitching is so hard. It's just so variable year to year whether a guy is right or not. It's just it just yeah. seems to happen to pitchers. Sometimes they're just not themselves for long stretches of time. Oh yeah, one other thing is that uh, I think team sources were generally uh, generally slower to buy breakouts. Yeah, I think that's almost always true. The feedback I pushed along to you guys was basically like, hey, if Nick Madrigal's on here, then Luis Arias and David Flesher merit discussion. Like, it's just yeah. types of players. Yeah, I'll tell you this. By zips, Arias would have been in the top 30. Yeah, he's he's a super weird player. I remember seeing him for the first time, too. I was at Instructs in Fort Myers, and he had like a 12-pitch at bat where he was just fouling pitches off and almost always fouling them off way down the third baseline, like into the onto the roof of the, the team complex building. Hmm. And I just thought it was so weird. I watched him. I think I was there for three days and I saw him twice and it was just him spraying balls the opposite way. 
And I was just like, this is really interesting because it's so consistent the way he's doing it. But also this guy can't turn on anything. Like it was just hard. Right. I'd never really seen someone quite like him ever before. And maybe haven't since. Madrigal is basically like a righty version of it. <laughs> but yeah, like he's super interesting. But those three guys I think are of a piece. Yeah. And then I think I pushed for, for Sandy Alcantara too to just be like, hey, this guy belongs in that Pablo Lopez, yeah. like Luis Garcia territory at least. Yeah, I think. And I was happy to see him honorable mentioned. Alcantara was on my initial cut of the 50 and not on Kevin's. And that's kind of where he settled. Gotcha. He was in my list of like, hey, we, we need to consider this guy. I also, my first list of the 50 at 75 people. So I'm very much an Eric school of thought. Where, uh, <laughs> more is more. Hey. Hey. Yeah, it's true. Like, I don't know, at some point, the way you talked about it earlier, I think is apt where it's, you know, the distribution of the talent is such that, oh, when you really get to 50, you really just want to include there are another 25 guys who just belong. You yeah. know, you could stack. If I could make an argument that the guy you put at 75 is 50th and it would be correct, you know. Yeah. Like at this point, you are just kind of splitting hairs. And then some of us take that and say, oh, well, then let's just expand the list. And then others go, no, it's just is why we shouldn't care so much. And like, we should just be done working now. <laughs> yeah. I um, I find that when I have these discussions with people, I'm always on the side of like, uncertainty means you should care less. <laughs> A lot of them are on the uncertainty means you should do more. But yeah, like, I don't think it's worth getting too worked up over the back of the list. Essentially, I assume that people will find it kind of weird that Tatis is number one. But, I mean, Acuna would have been if he wasn't hurt. Right, yeah. I I think it's fine that he's number one. I still think, you know, Acuna's offhand. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's right. Acuna and Albies both should have fired yeah. their agent. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, there's, there's a reason they're both in the top four. Right. It's because their deals are so team-friendly. And Acuna's unbelievable, but, like, what are you going to do? Like, Tatis is – I would just as soon take him just knowing that he's Fernando Tatis Jr. And any of those guys, basically. And where was Wander Franco? Where did he end up? He ended up sixth. Okay. Yeah, that's another one where it's just like, oh, watching him against big league pitching, he is just a kid still. And it's like, yeah. oh, some, some, of the, some of the time I'll be watching him and go, yeah, this is definitely – an elite guy and then just him hitting from the left side right now is like oh i think that there's going to be streakier power from the left side just because of the way his yeah issues from that side are are going to be more exploited by big league pitching yeah i still 80 him in all you know i'd 80 the hit tool still and 80 him overall you know in terms of a future value but it it has just been funny to watch this guy who has been immortal up until this point in yeah. his first, you know, what it's twenty games, but just look, you know, pretty kind of mortal. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that surprised by that. You know, he not everyone's going to be one Soto. I think the kind of the the fun one that I thought was on there was Mookie Betts, who I think is going to be way higher than people expected, but probably partially because they don't understand his contract, which is I think the weirdest contract ever signed in baseball. It had Say a more about that like seventy million dollar signing bonus. <laughs> so that's out of the way. Right. So if you look at his contract, so you've got like his AAV or whatever, right? Yeah, that we report. And that's like, I don't know, call it $25 million or $30 million a year, like starting now. But he's actually getting paid $17.5 million next year, and then $20 million the year after that, and then $25 million for a bunch of years after that, because the Dodgers paid him $65 million up front. And so you, like his his salary is actually a lot different than his like average annual value of the deal 
which is like pretty weird. And yeah, that is different. They did it for a, a tax scheme, as all great financial innovations truly are. It's so that he could receive his signing bonus while he resided in Tennessee before he uh, moved to L.A. Because they did it before this, before I think he played any games in L.A. Or at the very least, right around the time where he did. And it also avoided any pandemic pro rating. But yeah, basically the whole idea of the deal was to uh, was to jam a big lump sum of cash in a different tax regime. But as a side effect, that means that he's getting paid a lot less contractually by the team who acquires him. Even though his contract looks really big. I mean, it's still big, but it, it's yeah. $65 million lower than you think. And that moved him up the list some. And we got less pushback on him than uh, like Trout and Cole for that reason. Because he's cheaper than you think. And that, that was a kind of fun one. You know, you can take me out of finance, but I still find those kind of goofy things enjoyable. I Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it like that. And I for sure would. It moves the needle for me too. But yeah, I'm glad that you guys have considered and I, I know like like kg when he and i were first talking about the fact that he was going to help do it mm-hmm. that he was like let's what if we only talked about the players who could realistically be traded and i was like oh, yeah that's right. kind of interesting too so i'm interested to see how this continues to to evolve i don't necessarily think it's you know fangraph's dogma to adhere to the surplus value piece of it it would be easy to do that it would be you could just have a surplus value Oh, ranking yeah. and then do like the spreadsheet <laughs> right yeah. yeah there's just this there's just a spreadsheet to do it basically yeah all right you got any uh pre-deadline thoughts any teams that you're excited to see perhaps be active anybody who the market for you're you're interested to see how it plays out i think it's going to be hilarious to see the cardinals buy and the cubs sell and then them <laughs> to finish with the same record and they have the same record now pretty much i like i just it feels like that is preordained at this point and it's just going to be like, I mean, I think the Cubs have the right idea there in that they've already torpedoed the season so much by trading Darvish for nothing that they might as well just uh, just finish the job. But it is just going to be really funny to see two teams in, I mean, substantially the same position do opposite things. And I'm also curious to see how many fifth starters the Mets acquire. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what Minnesota does. Basically, working on their 40-man crunch stuff. Anybody who they move with multi-years of control, whether it's Jose Barrios, who I don't think they should move, or Byron Buxton, that opens them up to be able to take like a, a big league-ready prospect back in return. Right. That basically like a lot of the teams who want to buy have prospects who are in that realm to trade. Yeah. And the Cardinals, I think, are are among that that group too, where it's like, all right, some of this is is just my personal bias because I'm not in I'm not on the eastern coast of Florida scouting the Cardinals, Marlins, Nationals and Astros backfields. I'm in Arizona like I right. So it's harder for me to unearth low-level Cardinals guys in person because I'm not seeing their affiliates as much. Right. So like, you know, they they do have Mason Wynn and they do have Jordan Walker who are a couple years away still. But in terms of like slam dunk can headline a deal type prospects, the Cardinals guys are like Gorman and Liberator and Ivan Herrera, who I'm still on, even though he's not hitting. Like yeah. those are dudes who are who are are close, and if they're going to do a deal with someone, they have you know, like the Twins basically can't. They have an even split. But the Twins do basically like who's leaving the forty man, and then who needs to be added is pretty like even split. So yeah. for every multi year control guy, they give up they can take back someone who immediately has to you know, be on the 40. There hasn't been as much Berea smoke as I expected. 
I mean, but I think that might partially be because of when the draft happened. Oh gosh, just yeah, that, like, it's probably true. It's a lot harder to feed the rumor mills when you're busy doing the draft, and so I, I wonder if that's gonna speed back up a little. But I, I kind of thought he'd be dealt by now, to be honest. I did, you know, just from being. It's been hard for me too, and any of the prospect writers would tell you, like, please don't do the draft this late again. We would just rather have it in June. It can be later in June and be lined up with the College World Series, and we'd be fine right. with that. But, but yeah, like, so I, I came back from Colorado from covering the draft and the Futures game, and then I, I went to the backfields immediately, and there are amateur scouts there. There's, hey, look, I'm at the Dodgers place, and there's a four-corner scout who, you know, he just got a couple of players, actually, and and already he's out here. Like, now he's got two weeks to see as many deadline targets as he can if his team is going to sell – He's watching the Dodgers and the White Sox because they're likely to buy. And so, like, two weeks for, for him to unearth eight teams worth of prospects on the backfields, like, is just not right. it's feasible. So, it's yeah, I do think it's going to impact behavior and confidence. So, like, I'm watching the Dodgers guys in the backfields, and I'm seeing players I like. Carlos Santiago. Ooh, look, I didn't know who this guy was until I showed up to watch Dodgers uh, Complex League. And there's Jose Ramos, who's crushing it statistically. And he had a big extended, and so I know his name, and he was on last year's Dodgers list. But he's performing well enough that he probably needs to move. So at least I have background there and feel more confident in moving him than I do like, all right, well, here's this Carlos Santiago character who's a switch-hitting shortstop. He's kind of physical. I'm watching him over a couple of days, and he's he's hitting, and the swing is, you know, this and that, and... You know, it's driving confidence enough that I'm going to stick him on the list immediately. Yeah. But I can't imagine working for a team and being told, all right, like the draft is over. You've already done a little bit of this in the couple weeks leading up to the draft because of when it is. But now that it's over, you've got two weeks to go find, you know, go target every potential buyer in Arizona and find, you know, teenage prospects who we'd want to trade for in a deal. Like that's that's super, super difficult. And I think that it is going to impact the way. Yeah. Teams behave. It's funny because you might say, well, why don't they just stop doing the draft prep in June and then just go ahead to doing the backfield scouting? But that's not how things work. Humanity, it's sort of how it works. But but if you it move the draft to July, then they have draft discussions in July. Do you know any teams that didn't spend a bunch of time talking about the draft in July? Probably not. Absolutely right? not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, and there were players decisions who just always went. get made last minute. And if you have more time yeah. to do a thing, you're just going to spend more time and procrastinate and the wood bat leagues didn't say oh hey the draft is in july let's wait to start play until after the draft right you know so they the cape started when it started like it always does yeah and as it should the summer's only so long and people went and people went so like you know players eligible for the 2021 draft but who didn't have good college seasons went to the cape for a couple weeks to try to rebound their stock yeah. Or they went to the, the California Collegiate League to rebound their stock. The guy, Justin Choi, the first name out of Justin Choi's mouth when I was like, here's a bunch of track man data, find me some guys, was Nick Nostrini with UCLA because he's got you know 23 inches of vertical movement on his fastball. Nick Nostrini could not get out of the first inning in his final two starts for UCLA this year, but he went to the California Collegiate League mm-hmm. and he shoved in the couple of weeks leading up to the draft and then the Dodgers picked him in the fourth round. <laughs> And so, yeah, like, not only were scouts still sitting on these potential late breakout 21 guys, 
and going into the Midwest and the, the, the Northeast where, where guys were high school kids were still playing very late. But they were already on to 2022. Like you're on the Cape and you're looking, you're watching 22s in addition to the guys who are trying to rebound for 21. And then, yeah, like there is a scout I know who's he's a cross checker. He lives in Arizona. He cross checks basically everything between the Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana corridor west, like straight west through Oklahoma and Texas into the four corner states. That's his region to cross check. And he picks up pro coverage in the summer on the complexes because he lives in Phoenix, so I see him a lot then. And he was on the he went to the Cape. You know, like he's took he took a week before the draft and went to the Cape and like I don't know, I I have a lot of respect for the work that these people are doing obviously and it's it's yeah. really intense uh, to have to do that and travel that much and yeah, like it, it definitely complicated. Yeah, Everyone's just... like rhythms basically like my body rhythms are off because I got to go to the Cape now, you know, like it just seems like just if weird. the teams are all being honest with themselves, the marginal gains you get from that extra month of draft prep are low. Right. They're gains. It's just a marketing thing. Yeah, no one would argue they're not gains, but the marginal gains are very low and the marginal gains you'd get from starting the pro scouting a little earlier for the trade deadline are high. And I wonder if baseball will reconsider when they're like, man, we loved getting three weeks of coverage out of Ken Rosenthal tweeting rumors. And like now we're getting like one, maybe, because teams just were so delayed getting to it. Yeah, I think uh, I read RJ Anderson's piece. People should go read it on CBS Sports. He talked to executives about what they thought. I haven't read that yet. Where When the draft should be. And there's a lunatic in there who's like, it should be in October. I want to know who that executive is. Uh, who's just like, yeah, nobody cares about the Rule 5 draft or the non-tender deadline. And I'm sitting there like, I do. but uh, And then the same guy was like, the draft should be in October. And I was like, all right, well, your opinions about things are fine. They don't, you know, they don't matter to me, I guess. But but yeah, when the draft should be is a, an interesting question because every other sport does it in the off season. I think having baseball's draft at a time during the summer when the sports-loving population has nothing else to watch except for baseball is like smart. You know, if you put the baseball draft in October, anyone who really loves sports is just going to go, oh, what's, uh, I don't I don't care. There's a Mac football game on tonight. Like I'm going to watch that. Right. So I think that you got to, I think you got to do it during the summer when baseball is the only game in town. I agree. And I think the answer is to, is for major league baseball to try to do its thing to help promote amateur baseball and people's understanding, like it still just amazes me that people just don't understand baseball's draft process is kind of, it's pretty interesting. There's This is the only one where high school kids can go and, you know, like you can watch most of the college kids any given weekend on a streaming service, which is more accessible now than ever before. Like I think there are ways of promoting the draft that they, they're just like, let's move it to July and we'll have all a prospect day where it's a futures game and the draft in the same day. And it's like, no, like it just became hard for the people who cover that stuff to actually to do it and promote it the way you're hoping that we do for free in exchange for giving us access. Like I was at the futures <laughs> game. I got sunburn on my forearms sitting where I did because it's the futures game and it's a big deal, but I never, I still haven't written anything about it because draft, I just yeah. haven't had time. <laughs> yeah. And then the the fruit ripened and began to rot. It's like, well, does anyone want to read a Futures Game piece now? Did anybody write a Futures Game piece? I don't think Keith or Jim or anybody, any. I don't think even think any of the Pipeline guys wrote a Futures Game piece. Yeah, well, it's just too much stuff, right? Yeah, it's just, you know, I've, I'm the guy from Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. Like, I just can't <laughs> do any more of this stuff. Um, all right, any last pre-deadline thoughts? Because we're going to be yeah. in a hole working for the next week and a half probably. 
Yeah, people should check out our deadline coverage. It's going to be too much, like it always is. It's always too much. But if you really want to read about the you know potential third catcher that your team got in exchange for a 28-year-old walking four guys per nine in double A, we got you covered. Yeah, that'll be... <laughs> but if yes. you want to read about the good trades, we'll have you covered for those too. But we are very much completionists here, so... Uh... I hope it's an, an active deadline. I'm looking for... What are the Yankees going to do? And how is it complicated by the fact that they have 49 guys on their 40 man right now because so many because of their covid outbreak basically <sighs> what are the teams in the NL East going to do is Dave Dombrowski going to do his thing where he's like gunslinging prospects hmm. irresponsibly that might happen and then you mentioned the NL Central is tight the Brewers are well positioned but the Reds front office feels like they need to do something and uh you know six and a half feels like a lot more than it did. What was it like a week and a half ago? It was not six and a half in the NL Central, the gap between the Brewers and the other and the other teams. And then, yeah, you have the NL West where it's just like the Giants will not quit and the Dodgers and Padres' yeah. expectations are going to push those two teams to do stuff. But, like, the Padres' farm system is pretty thin now. Like, Ethan Elliott, who's got a lefty with the changeup and command who I moved up on the board this week. Like, I just think he's going to be a good mid rotation starter. Basically uh, he might be traded in the next week just because the Padres don't have a whole lot of other stuff that they're willing to part with. They're not going to trade CJ Abrams or Robert Hassel. Yeah. So like, yeah, th- those are the, those are the NL headlines. I think I'm looking for in the next week. And then as far as the AL is concerned, again, it's like, what do the Mariners do? They're kind of on the fringe. Expectations are starting to, you know, maybe dictate their decision-making a little bit in the central. Yeah. yeah. Cleveland is just going to behave like Cleveland. The White Sox just sort of have the central in hand, I feel like. And then I mentioned the Yankees and the Rays are, the Rays of course are almost always, although last year was an exception, the big 40 man crunch team where they have to consolidate prospect pieces. They might as well go ahead and do it in the middle of the year where they're being competitive. And so I expect the Rays to be very active. Like they're the team where with Minnesota, where I'm looking and I'm going, you know, I bet the Rays would like Nelson Cruz, and also they have all these pieces, but the Twins can't really take these pieces back unless they're willing to part with someone who has multiple years of control to kind of free up some space. And so I do wonder if there's like a Rays-Twins blockbuster that just fits, you know, in, in terms of like the exchange of, of players that, you know, that's that's where my, as I'm working on the 40-man stuff, where I'm really just sort of done with the AL right now. That's as I'm going through. I'm like, huh, these two teams are would make interesting trade blockbuster bedfellows, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, check out our coverage. Thank you for joining us on another Fangraphs audio segment. Yeah. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing, and uh, we'll see you again next Friday. See you guys. This has been Fangraphs audio. Thank you to Ben Nicholson Smith for joining us. As Ben and Eric mentioned. Make sure to keep an eye on the homepage for plenty of trade deadline coverage next week. We will have lots going on, and the best way you can stay on top of it is to subscribe to the Fangraphs newsletter if you haven't already. We hope you enjoyed the program, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.